Well, thank you, Ethan and worship team, for leading us this morning in worship. And indeed, we have gathered to hear the voice of God uh, speak to us in His Word. And so I would invite you to take your Bibles and open your copy of God's Word with me to John chapter 15 as we pick up our study together. You know, fall is officially upon us, and with that come all of our fall events here at the church. I know last weekend we enjoyed the men's conference, a great time of equipping for many of the men in our church. Uh, but this coming Thursday night, we've got a ladies' event that is called Podcast and Pie. And I would just say, if, if you're a lady in this church and you would like to be part of that, it's going to be a great time of encouraging fellowship together around the truth. And what's more, if that wasn't enough to fill you up, there's pie, which from where I stand, that's like the perfect combination, fellowship and food. I mean, it's all, it's all going on there Thursday night. And in, even if you don't know what a podcast is, that's okay, uh, because once you sign up, uh, you'll be sent an audio link to the, uh, to the interview as well as the transcript, so you can read that just as easily as listen to it. And so if that opportunity for some fellowship uh, is appealing to you, I would encourage you to, to sign up for that occasion on Friday night night. You know, it is fall time, and it's a beautiful fall day outside today. You know, there are beautiful, warm, sunny fall days, and then there are also beautiful, wet, cold fall days, and this is one of the latter kind, but they each come with their own unique beauty. And this past Friday was one of the former beautiful fall days, the beautiful, warm, sunny fall day. And I thought to myself, you know what, self, today is a great day to go out and deal with all those leaves that have blanketed your yard over the past two days. Because if you don't do it now, they're going to be not only wet, but you're going to be cold, and that's just a bad combination. So outside we went with rakes and backpack blowers in tow and got all the leaves in a giant pile. And this year I added a twist. I pulled out my weed whacker and decided that I'm going to mulch these leaves myself so that I don't have 40 bags like last year, and we'll just condense them down. It's going to be great. And after a couple hours of work out there on the leaves, I finally got my yard cleared. And I thought, boy, am I glad that that job is done for the season. <laughs> I proceeded to go inside, and as I was going inside, the sky began to darken, and I thought, in the providence of God, this is practically perfect. I got it done just before the rain. And I went in and made myself a cup of coffee and stood and looked out my, my back door just in time to see the wind pick up and blow all of my neighbor's leaves into my yard <laughs> as though nothing had been done at all. And it was such an exercise in ridiculous futility that I called to my wife in the other room and I said, Michelle, you have to come see this. I cannot believe what just happened. Surely there has got to be a sermon illustration in this somewhere. <laughs> and I didn't have to think long before it came to me because just as I stood there observing the total failure of my efforts and the futility of what seemed to be just a waste of time, it wasn't, I know, but it felt like that in the moment, I thought, that is precisely what Jesus is trying to help us avoid in John chapter 15, living a futile Christian life that is worthless because we're seeking to do it in our own strength. 
You see, when we try to live out our Christianity, when we seek to live the life that Christ has blessed us with, wasn't that the message of John chapter 14? You've got new life, so live like it. If you try to do that on your own, you will stand at the window of your life gazing out upon the results of your efforts and you will see that this was nothing more than an exercise in futility. Because if you disconnect yourself from Jesus, who is the source, enabler, and empowerer of life, you will find that your efforts will amount to nothing in the end. And that's where Jesus is driving us here in John chapter 15. If you remember where we've been, just for the sake of context, let me review. We've been in John chapter 13 all the way through this stretch that goes through chapter 16. It's known as the upper room discourse. It's the final instructions that Jesus is giving to his followers. And as we've seen, even though he's talking about himself being the way, the truth, and the life, it's really that idea of life that is the driving force behind this whole conversation that Jesus is getting into here. See, that idea of life, it occupies two and a half out of the three chapters that are here in this text. It's really the rhythm, if you will, of the Christian life. It's the force that drives us and propels us forward. And in John chapter 14, if you recall, Jesus already explained to us the availability of that life now in him as being the way and the truth, but also the grand superiority of it. And we came to a bit of a crescendo sort of a moment at the end of chapter 14 last week where Jesus says, enough talking, let's get up and hit the road. It's time for me to go and get this life for you. It's going to be better. You need it, so let's go do it. That was chapter 14. But as they're on the road, on their way to the next station in the flow of Christ's final day, which was the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus continues to instruct his men here in chapter 15 and chapter 16. Now that the superior life is made available to you, here's how you are to use it. And that's where we're going here in chapter 15. How to effectively use the life that Christ has furnished so that your Christian walk is not an exercise in futility, so to speak. Now, don't forget the context of where we've been now. Jesus, if you remember, had just rocked the disciples' conception of what life was. He had just told them that just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, just as they are one, so now, Jesus says, through my Spirit am I in you and you are in me. Just as the Father and the Son are one, so too now, if we have believed in Christ, we are made one with Him. And, and the result of that, the impact of that, friend, is just, you could say, dynamite, because it blows up your old life. And it demands something new from you now. And if you understand that, then you know you can't just be you. You can't just you do you now. No, if you've been made one with the life of God, you can't just go with the flow and do whatever you want to do. No, if you're one with God, then your life must change dramatically. 
your life will start to, as Jesus says here in chapter 15, produce fruit. And that's the core image here in this chapter. My hope and prayer as we get into chapter 15, which kind of feels like clear blue sky in front of us, we haven't touched it yet, but we need to remember that it's connected to everything that's come before. My hope and prayer is that this chapter would be clearly compelling for you, that it would be powerfully practical in your life as Jesus himself teaches us together how to live a fruitful Christian life. And over the next five weeks, we're going to work our way through this chapter. And here in these first three weeks, we're going to be tracking with Jesus as he explains to us, first, the motivations for why we should want to have a fruitful life. Then next week, we'll look at the instructions on on how to actually go about doing that before Jesus finally applies it for us and shows us this is what it's going to look like if you are living fruitfully. So he's going to set the pace for this life that he has offered here in these chapters. And so let's make sure that we listen up and lean in. Today, we're going to look at the three motivations for why we should pursue a fruitful, useful Christian life. This is no exercise in futility. This is now the empowered life of Christ that he has planted within you. Let's examine it together. See, the first thing that we're told here, the very first motivation for why we should pursue a fruitful life is because God expects our lives to be fruitful. Look at what he says there in verses 1 and 2. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may be more fruitful. Now, let's just dig into that because here we find our very first motivation. See, as Jesus says there, I am the true vine, it's important to remember that Jesus has been making these I am statements all the way through his gospel. And this is the seventh and final of those I am statements. And if you take them all and combine them together, what you end up with is a very powerful kind of mosaic on the person of Christ and the nature of his work for you. For instance, we've already learned, if you recall, that Jesus is the bread of life. He is, if you remember, the light of the world, you see. He is the doorway through which you access God's presence. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life in protection of his sheep. He is the resurrection and the life the one who comes and conquers death for you. And then in the last chapter, we learned that he is also the way, the truth, and the life. And in every single one of those other I am statements, Jesus revealed something about the nature of God, whose name is Yahweh, or as he said to Moses, I am who I am. I am self-contained in my glory And I am powerful, but now that powerful, self-existent God has come to bring us life. And that's Jesus' point here in this chapter. See, the difference in this final I am statement here in chapter 15, I am the true vine, 
is that unlike all the other statements, Jesus adds a second participant into the imagery. See there in verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. That's the first time that's happened. It's the addition of another party, another participant here, that makes this metaphor so very unique. And it's the fact that there are two participants, the Father and the Son, even though they being one, they are still distinct in their nature, that gives this image of the true vine two separate halves. See, what the two participants in the picture are going to accomplish is, first, on the one hand, the bearing of fruit. In Christ, there is now the ability for us to be fruitful. But because the Father is also a participant in the image, guess what? He takes charge of fruit pruning. And that really is the outline of the image. See, our being in Christ, the fact that he is the true vine, is going to produce on the one hand fruit bearing, but because the Father's in the mix, it is also going to produce on the other hand fruit pruning. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to spend the first three looking at what it means to bear fruit. And then we'll spend the last two looking at what it means to have your fruit be pruned. Because that is the imagery that Jesus gives to us here. But seeing the fact that there's multiple participants brings us to the point of needing to understand the various players that Jesus introduces here in the text. See, he introduces himself as being the true vine. He is the one who produces life. And in verse 5, he's going to go on to specify that you are the branches. Obviously, if the branches aren't connected to the vine, then those branches are not alive. And we'll get into that here in just a little bit. So there's him, there's you, and then there's this third party now. There's the Father. And Jesus here in verse 1 calls him the vine dresser. And in the text... The word that Jesus uses to describe the father as the vine dresser is just the basic word for a farmer. And that's the image that provides us with our first motivation to the pursuit of a fruitful life. That's all by way of introduction. Let's get down into the actual motivations now. See, it's, it's the intention of the farmer that his fields produce fruit. I mean, what good is it to be a farmer over a field of dead plants? Every farmer has a vested interest in ensuring that every branch on his farm be a fruitful branch, that it not just produce fruit, but that it produce much fruit. And that's what Jesus says here. Every branch that is in me that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. And the word that he uses there means to produce more in terms of quality and in terms of quantity. See, that's the Father's intention, is that we would be fruitful. And that's the reason why we ought to pursue fruitful Christian lives. It's because it's frankly what the Father expects out of us. He's the farmer responsible for the cultivation of the field. And what farmer doesn't want the maximum crop potential possible out of his field? That is the Father's intention for us. You know, I once had a farmer friend who wasn't just any farmer. This was a farmer who had a huge 
fruit farm that grew trees that stretched for miles and miles in his orchard. And he was a producer of fruit and one of his sole distributors was a place like Costco. So it wasn't just a couple of fruit trees. We're talking about miles of fruit trees. And I went to visit him one day and as I went out into his field, I found those fruit trees stretching for miles. And I I was amazed to notice that every single one of his trees had exactly six branches, not five not seven, but six. And they were all arranged in a perfect V formation with those branches, three on each side, all spreading out at perfect 45 degree angles to the ground. His trees had all been pruned into the shape of a giant V. And I said, first of all, how is this to be? Second of all, why would you do such a thing? And he said, well, I invented a giant pruning machine that just drives down the center of the tree and lowers blades down and it just cuts a V into the tree. And that's how I've done this thing. And I said, well, well, why? Why would you have done such a strange thing as to cut your trees into into the shape of a V? And he said, it's not because my last name starts with V. It didn't. He said, the reason why I've done that is so that every single branch would be able to get the maximum amount of sunlight possible. And every branch gets the same amount of sunlight because no matter where the sun is, it's able to hit every branch to an equal degree. And so therefore, my field is more fruitful. I said, prove it. And so he did. He took me out into his field. And as I looked at the underside of those branches, folks, I'm telling you, every single square inch was covered in the biggest pieces of fruit you've ever seen. See, that farmer had a very vested interest So much so that he got very creative and invented an entirely new machine to ensure the fruitfulness of his field. He wanted to make sure that every single last branch on every single tree was maximally fruitful. He got creative and the result was that the trees were straining under the burden of their much more better fruit. That is the imagery here. The father, as a farmer in the image, is not just interested in his branches bearing some fruit and being fruitful. No, he insists that they seek to be maximally fruitful. Verse 2, every branch in me, Jesus says, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, well, he prunes it so that it may be more fruitful. See, it's just that simple. Either we bear fruit and prove the reality of our connection to the vine, or we don't. Now, let's be clear. This verse is not a verse that's teaching that you can lose your salvation. It's not as though these branches bear fruit for a while, and then they stop, and so he cuts you off and destroys you. No, that would be to press the imagery way too far. Because that would be completely counter to everything else that John has taught us in his gospel already. Remember chapter 10? Where if the Father has you in his hand, clasped between his hand and that of the Son, and you're here held in his grip, if you are one of his own, there is nothing that can remove you. So this is not a verse that's saying your your salvation can be threatened. No, that's not the point of the image. The point of the image is simply to say this. As the farmer, the Father is the one who has the right to determine which branches are alive and which branches are not. And if a branch is connected to the vine, then it is alive and it will bear fruit. And the Father will go to work to make sure that it is maximally fruitful. 
But if you are not in Christ, if you are not connected to Him in faith, then you will not seek to abide in Him. You will not seek to dwell with Him. And the result in your life is going to be obvious. And the Father, He knows. There's no way that you can fool Him. And He has every right to judge accordingly. See, the Father is the one, the farmer, the vine dresser, who has the right to determine whether or not someone is truly spiritually alive. And as verse 2 teaches us here, he exercises that right. He, he looks at the life of every single person and determines whether they are truly in Christ or not. Friend, it may be possible for you to fool the person sitting next to you in the pew into thinking that you are spiritually alive. You may be even able to, to fool yourself into thinking that you are spiritually alive. But you cannot fool the father, the farmer, who alone has the right to determine if you're connected to the vine or not. You know, Paul Tripp has a very useful image here. He's a, a good biblical scholar. He says that people like this who metaphorically run around trying to prove that they have fruit when they're not truly connected to Christ are people who try to staple spiritual fruit onto the tree of their life. Where for a little while, uh, uh, if you staple an apple to the trunk of a tree, it's going to, to look like it's a red, rosy, shiny apple. It's very alive. It's a very good piece of fruit that is attached to that tree, is it not? But over time, what happens? It begins to sour and go rotten and go bad, proving that the tree has no connection to that piece of fruit. And that's what happens when we run around trying to generate our own fruit for ourselves. Because if you're not connected to the tree through the vine, there is no life in you. And God clearly knows it. He takes one look at your life. He knows the reality of who you are. To those who are producing true, genuine spiritual fruit, those who are alive spiritually in Christ, we'll get into what that means in a moment, very important. He then goes on to introduce techniques that enable you to bear even more fruit and to become more fruitful. That's what he says there in verse 2. But to those who are dead, not in Christ at all, just pretending to be branches, well, those in the final assessment, he cuts them off and destroys them in judgment. See, there is no middle ground here. It's clear that Jesus' expectation is that we, if we be in Christ, we be fruitful disciples. And that's the first reason why we should take an interest in having a fruitful life. Because the Father, He expects it. No, more than that. He, he requires it. And see, those are words that, if you're left to your own devices, could really strike some fear into your heart. Cut off? Dead branches, fake fruit. I can't be dead and fruitless. I've got to get busy now. That might be your natural knee-jerk reaction to this first point that we've just covered. But Jesus says here in the text, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, that's a Gregorian paraphrase, I'll grant you. Hang on. There's one thing you're forgetting, he says. You, being dead, can't produce fruit on your own. And that's the second reason why we ought to desire lives of fruitfulness. 
because it's the very thing that Jesus died to enable. See, Jesus is the one who empowers fruitfulness. Now, there's a lot of imagery going on here in the text that we kind of need to pick apart and understand to really get down into this idea that Jesus alone empowers fruitfulness. Because the people of Israel thought that they were the ones who empowered fruitfulness and they had failed mightily. So let me show you their failure before we go on to see the way that Jesus has enabled us now to be fruitful where they were fruitless. So it's pretty clear, as we've already said, let me explain this now, from the end of chapter 14, that these words here in chapter 15, 16 are spoken on the road. In 1431, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. And there's no reason to think that they didn't rise and do just that. In chapter 15 and 16, it could have been stated in as little as 10 minutes if you just read it through out loud. And, and it's clear that, that they're traveling here now and Jesus is is walking from the upper room over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you pull out a map of ancient Jerusalem, what you will notice is right smack in between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane lies the Temple Mount. And so it's very likely that as Jesus was passing through the darkened city of Jerusalem, he passed straight through the temple complex on his way to the Garden. Now, as the ancient historian Josephus records for us, Hanging above the massive doorway to the temple was a gigantic golden grapevine with clusters of grapes that were as tall as a man. And the reason why they had decorated the temple entrance in that way is because the Jewish people saw themselves as being the vine of God. And that's a well-established motif throughout the whole Old Testament. They saw themselves as being the vine meant to bring life to humanity. And that is the reason why a giant vine hung over the doorway to the temple. Now, we don't know for sure if it's that golden vine that's driving Jesus' imagery here, but it's very likely given the fact that every single other I am statement was made in the context of a physical object lesson. But whether or not it was that sight that sparked this comparison, what is clear is that Jesus is drawing a very clear distinction between the fruitlessness of Israel and the fruitfulness of what he had came, come to provide. See, here's why that's so important. If you go back into the Old Testament, what you'll learn is that in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, God says to Israel, I planted you to be a choice vine, holy of pure and undefiled seed. How is it then that you, O Israel, have become degenerate and turned into a wild, fruitless vine? God goes on in the book of Ezekiel on no less than three occasions to use the same imagery and to say to Israel, because you're a fruitless vine, you will now be burned up in judgment. And as we've seen, the consequences of not bearing fruit are very serious because God expects just that. And Israel had discovered the hard way that you can't generate fruit if you're depending on yourself to bear it. So as we look at their failure that Jesus could well have been reminded of as he was walking through the town, we go back here and ask ourselves the question, if they failed so spectacularly because they were depending upon themselves, 
how do we make sure that we do not make the same mistake? And I think that tends to be the question that was in the mind of the disciples, that they were a little terrified here. How do we end up on the pruning end of the spectrum where God prepares us to bear more fruit and not on the chopping off end of the spectrum that verse 2 talked about? Well, Jesus answers that by pointing back to the image from earlier in chapter 13 where he washed their feet. Remember? And he says it there in verse 3. Look, because of my word, you are clean already. Their ability to bear any kind of fruit at all depended upon the word of Christ residing within them. That could only happen as they had clung to it and believed in it. See, it's the work of Christ that would enable their fruitfulness. The disciples and we along with them might read verse 2 and say, I don't want to be chopped off. How do I bear fruit? Jesus' answer to that is found right here in verse 3. He says, there is no way for you to bear fruit apart from me. There is no way for you to be prepared for the pruning work of the Father if you have not been cleansed by me. Now here in the text, it's very interesting as Jesus makes these connections between pruning and cleansing because he seems to be mixing his metaphors there a little bit. How does cleansing go with pruning? That seems to be a little bit of a, of a stiff sort of a transition, right? How, how, what's happening here? The reason why that doesn't make a lot of sense to us is because our English really obscures what's happening here. What we can't see in our language is the fact that the words for prune and clean are almost identical words in the Greek language. One of them is the word kathairo, and the other one is katharos. What Jesus is saying here is this. The way by which you are able to be pruned instead of being chopped off is only as I do a work of purification within you. Kathairo and katharos, these two things are connected. You cannot be fit for pruning if you have not first been cleansed and connected to me. That is how cleansing takes place. See, Jesus isn't just playing around with words here, even though there's some pretty masterful wordplay going on. No, he's making a very profound spiritual point, and that's this. Everything that you need to be cleaned up and connected to him as the vine, he has already done. And so if you've believed in him, you are now fit for the Father's pruning and for the bearing of fruit. And that is exactly what will happen. The vine dresser will look at you, and instead of hacking you off, no, because now you are pure, no, now the vine dresser proceeds straight to pruning. And so any fruitfulness in you, it comes exclusively because of the work of Jesus enabling you on your behalf. That's what he says. And you see the essence of that as he plugs that statement back into his metaphor there in verse 4. Look at what he says at the end. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What's he saying? Well, the Father expects you to be fruitful. How do you get fruitful? It's only as you are connected to the enabling power of his work on your behalf. Friend, you can't, you can't do this on your own. It is an exercise in futility. 
it will get you nowhere. See, on your own, Jesus says very clearly here, you cannot generate fruit. You've got about as much hope of generating acceptable spiritual fruit before God on your own apart from Christ as you do in going outside, picking up a stick, and telling it to make you a honey crisp apple. It just ain't gonna happen. But if you take that stick and you connect it onto the tree in the proper manner and the life-giving sap of the tree begins to flow, watch out because fruit is going to be on the way. If you, being a branch, are connected to the vine, you will bear fruit for the work of Christ is taking place within you. But if you are not connected to him as the life giver, you will not bear fruit. And that is the essence of the image here. Christ takes you from being just a rando stick on the ground and he makes you a part of himself. And now because you're connected to him, the source of life, you're able now because of that connectivity to to bear fruit in keeping with his life. It's in him alone he makes very clear here that you are able to bear fruit. It is in your connectivity to the person of Jesus Christ that causes the Father to look upon you and choose to prune you and make you more fruitful rather than just cut you off because you're dead. It is exclusively in connectivity to who Jesus Christ is in your life. And that is what now drives him to issue this command in the first part of verse 4. Look, therefore... Because of all this, abide in me and I in you. That's the key that we have to understand. The only way to generate spiritual fruit is as we abide in Christ, the one who generates that fruit within us. So that raises a very important question. What does it mean to abide Well, that's a question that we don't have to feel the urgency of answering just here today alone because it's really the theme of this entire section. So we'll be talking about it for a number of weeks. But let me begin here by just giving you a very clear, simple definition. To abide in means to dwell or remain in. Remember back in chapter 14 where Jesus says, the one who loves me and keeps my commandments, my Father and I will come and make our habitation in Him. We will come and dwell with Him. It's the exact same word. We will abide in that one. See, Jesus is saying here, this idea of abiding means to make it your spiritual address. It's the place where you live. And just as the Father and the Son now live in you through the Spirit, if you have their Spirit and you have them dwelling in you, Jesus says, now you are to dwell in them. What's that mean? It means, friend, that your spiritual address must now be listed as in Christ. The power that runs through the circuitry of your spiritual house is through Christ. To dwell in Christ means that You see yourself as being attached to Him in vibrant relationship, living, moving, and having your being in this new condition of being connected to the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to abide in Him. It means that you live in full dependency and connectivity now to Him and Him alone. Next week... 
Jesus is going to give us very clear instructions on just how to go about doing that. I know many of you might be wondering, how? How do I abide? Well, come back next week and we'll cover it for you, answering just that question. But clearly, this is a very important theme because Jesus uses this word and this command to abide ten times in these opening ten verses. This is the key to everything, to unlocking the instructions about how to live a vibrant, meaningful, fruitful Christian life. It means that we must now abide in or dwell with Him. And we'll cut that open next week and seek to drain everything we can out of it to learn exactly what it means and what it looks like to do this. But for now, the first thing that we need to notice is that if you do abide you will be fruitful. If you do not abide, you cannot bear fruit. It's just that simple. That's what he teaches us here. Apart from him, you and I, we can do nothing. But being in him, now we are enabled to, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, do every good work which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them because we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. See, the key to living a fruitful life where you manifest things like the fruit of the Spirit, engaging in the work of Jesus Christ, doing the very works that God prepared beforehand, before creation for, for you to do, is as you are the workmanship of Jesus. It's as you are created in a new kind of life through Him and His power in you. So that's what we need to understand here. The second reason why we should pursue fruitfulness is because that's what Jesus has made possible for us. If He died to ensure that we would be fruitful followers of His name, why would we not care about that? I mean, not only does the Father demand that you be fruitful, the Son has now enabled you to be fruitful. So that is precisely what we should go and do. See, if you're in Him, you are prepped for pruning and for fruitfulness because, as He says here, you are clean already. Everything that you need, as we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, for life and godliness, to live a fruitful life, has already been granted to you in the work of Jesus Christ. You are clean already, and therefore... Go and bear fruit. Now, we need to know exactly how to do that. And there's, there's a bit of a hint given to us here in these last two verses. As we said at the very beginning, there are three parties that are in this image. The Father who insists upon fruitfulness, the Son who enables fruitfulness, but now we turn to the third party, and that's you. See, just as surely as Jesus is the vine who enables you to live a fruit-filled life, so he says here in verse 5, are you the branches? And this now leads us to our final motivation for why we ought to pursue fruitfulness. It's because we need fruitfulness. You get down into verses 5 and 6, and there are clearly two options here. Option A, if you abide in Christ, you will be fruitful, verse 5. He says, whoever abides in me, he restates it, and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. But then option B, verse 6, it's frankly very horrifying. In the farmer's final assessment of your life, that farmer who never gets confused or fooled, 
if you do not abide in Christ, if you are not connected to Him, you will be fit for one fate and one fate only. And here it is. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Again, it's just that simple. This isn't just what the Father expects and the Son enables. It's very clearly what we all desperately need as well. See, in Christ, your life, it's now been granted meaning and vibrancy, availability in Him. Life is now livable. And if you want to know whether or not you've got that life, Jesus says, look at the fruit of your life. Check it. Inspect it. Because the day is coming when the farmer, he is surely going to take a look and inspect it and pass judgment on whether you're connected to the branch or not. Set up a fruit inspection station in your heart. That's what we're being called to here. You know, if you ever drive into the great state of California, from a place like Arizona, for instance, you'll no sooner cross the border than you'll be forced to drive through a booth that spans the entire roadway with a line that stretches all the way back for miles into Arizona. And at first, if you're uninitiated, you're going to be wondering to yourself, what is this? A counterterrorism sting? An FBI manhunt? But, but as you get closer to the booth where inspections are happening, you'll see a, a very disappointing little sticker that just simply reads, Department of Agriculture. <laughs> and, and they're going to force you to open up your trunk. And then they're going to look inside and see if you're bringing any fruits or vegetables into the state. And if you've got any, they're going to toss them straight into the trash can, which is kind of ironic because for a state that is so fixated on appearances, the war on fruits and veggies wouldn't seem to make a lot of sense. I'll leave my commentary to that process to your imagination. But the point that I'm trying to illustrate here is that in order for you to get into that state, you have to prove that you're not carrying illegal fruit. But when it comes to the family of God, it's just the opposite legitimate spiritual fruit is the evidence that Christ has already provided you citizenship. It's your ID, if you will, that demonstrates, no, this is where I belong because Jesus is the only one who can generate this kind of fruit within me. And so that's the reason why we're supposed to set up our own inspection stations and to examine our lives to see if, as Paul says, we be in the faith. Because fruit, it proves that you have been granted citizenship into the state of being in Christ. That's your zip code. That's your address. As Jesus says here, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you've got nothing. Now, let's be very, very clear here for just a moment. We don't depend upon fruit to get us in to heaven as though that were our passport. That's not what we go back to for the assurance of our salvation. No, for assurance of salvation, we depend upon Christ and point to Him alone. He is both the ground of our salvation and its full assurance. I'm not getting into heaven because look at my fruit. That's not what I'm pointing towards. No, I'm getting into heaven because Jesus said He can come based on my work. See, Christ is both the ground and the fullness of our assurance. So what role does, does fruit play in it if Jesus is the assurance? Well, fruit, friend, it is simply the external 
manifestation of an internal kind of reality. Because if you are connected to Him, the one who guarantees you entrance, if He is in you and you are in Him, then your life is going to be fruitful. See, fruit doesn't lie. Jesus' brother James had this to say on this point. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Can a fig tree produce olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? James 3.10 Your fruit, here's what he's saying. Your fruit out there points straight back to the root of what is already true in here. And that's why we inspect the fruit of our life. Not so that we could justify our way into heaven, but so that we could see the reality of Christ's presence at work in us. See, the truth of whether your life is connected to the vine, it's always going to be seen in the fruit of your life. And that's the final reason why we ought to pursue connectivity to Christ. Not just because the Father demands it, or because the Son has enabled it, but because, because we must have it. Those are the reasons why. Those are the reasons why we should lean into the metaphor that Jesus has given to us here and seek to understand it. And now that we've wrapped our minds around the why of fruitfulness, next week we're going to move on to the instructions of exactly how we are to abide in Christ and therefore produce true, genuine spiritual fruit. But this morning, before we do that, I want to leave you with some thoughts on the glory of what Jesus has done for us. You'll, you'll recall, at the beginning, we talked about Israel thinking that it was the vine, fit to bring spiritual life of God to humanity, and yet they failed miserably. And there, then, on that scene, late that final Passover night, walks Jesus of Nazareth, with one more grand statement about the nature of Yahweh, the great I Am. And he stood up late that night and pointed to the sleeping people of Israel and said, they aren't the vine that brings life. I am the true vine, Yahweh is. And apart from me, you've got nothing. That's a statement that we would do well to remember. The only power that you and I have for our spiritual life is found in the work of Christ alone. That was true for Israel. They had to look forward to the work of Christ for their salvation. It's also true for us as we look back to Him as the true vine for our salvation as well. Here's how it should have worked for the people of Israel. See, as Jesus was speaking these words, they weren't given in some vacuum no, they were a wonderful fulfillment of a prayer request that had been made a full millennia earlier in the time of King David. Psalm 80 records the prayer request for us. And these are the words that I believe were in Jesus' mind as he gave this object lesson. Listen with me and marvel at the power of what Christ now, the true vine, has done for you. The psalmist says in Psalm chapter, in Psalm, there aren't chapters in Psalms, Psalm 80, verse 8, you... Almighty God, you were the one who brought the vine out of Egypt. He's talking about the Exodus there. He says, you were the one who drove out the nations and planted it. That's talking about the conquest of Joshua and the judges. 
He goes on and he says, you were the one who cleared the ground for this vine and it took deep root and filled the land. That's a clear reference to the Davidic kingdom. But then the psalmist goes on to prophesy how the vine, Israel, was going to be uprooted and destroyed because of its unfruitfulness. And then he prays this prayer to heaven. Listen now. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from your place in heaven and see and have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. And now this. And for the Son whom you made strong for yourself. Who is the Son you think the psalmist is referring to? Well, he doesn't leave us guessing. He answers it in verse 17. He says, let your hand now, when that sun comes, when that true vine comes, may your hand be on the man of your right hand. Who is it that sits at the right hand of the Father? But the person of Jesus Christ, his Son. The psalmist says, that Son of Man, whom you have now made strong and mighty to save for yourself. Who is that Son of Man? It is the person of Jesus Christ. And once He, the true vine, the better vine came, here's the result. The result that was true not only for the people of Israel, but also for you and me as well. Then, now, we shall not ever turn back from you. So, great God, give us life and we will call upon your name. Is that not what Jesus has made possible for us? that now we can call upon the name of this great and mighty God because He has sent the true vine to replace the faithless, fruitless one. He says this, Restore us, restore us to life and fruitfulness, O Lord God of hosts. And in the final assessment, farmer, let your face shine so that we, we might be saved. Friends, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to be for us the true vine, enabling our fruitfulness so that now in Him we might be connected to the fullness of the life of God, so that we might be saved, so that when the vine dresser takes a look at our life on the day of judgment, he says, this one is safe, this one is alive, this one is here because he or she is connected to my Son. For Christ, our salvation, the Son of Man from the Father's right hand, the true vine Himself, you're now connected to Him. And so have you already been pruned and prepared according to the Father's good pleasure. That's what your Jesus has done. Next time, we'll look at how to take advantage of that. Let's pray. Father, thank You for sending Your Son to make us fruitful Thank you for granting us your spirit that now empowers that fruitfulness. May we truly seek to abide in Christ in this week that now stands before us. May he make us fruitful just as he has promised to do. And as we go, may it be with a heart that embraces the work of your pruning in our lives, no matter what form that may take. And may we truly cling to Christ, abiding in him, dwelling with him, in genuine, vibrant relationship, seeing our life as being hidden in Him alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close together by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in Him is never in vain. Grow in grace this week.